You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. To the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we're talking about cults. Now, many of you know about these kinds of groups. If you've been watching my Facebook page lately, um, earlier this week I got an email about a way to get a free King James version of a Bible. And I knew immediately what it was, and lo and behold, it's run by a site, mormon.org. So I signed up immediately, and just yesterday, Allie and I were visited by some Mormon sisters who came into our house. We had a, well, I should say our apartment. We had a nice discussion together and such. And off they left. Will they come back? I don't know, because as you can imagine, I'm not that easy to pull the wall over and such. But there are several groups out here like this. You've got the Mormons, you've got the Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, International Church of Christ, and there are many, many more most of us haven't even heard of. Here's the difference. There are not Christians. They, they all fall outside the range of orthodoxy. So what are we going to do if we're talk? how do we get them to come to know the true Jesus of the gospel? Where, well, then I decided to bring on someone who wrote a book recently, Sharing Jesus with the Cults. Uh, his name's Jason Oaks. In 2002, he received a bachelor's degree in church ministry with an emphasis on preaching from Hope International University. He received a Master of Divinity degree from Bethel Seminary, San Diego, in 2006. He has served in ministry in various capacities for the last 20 years. He served as youth pastor, college pastor, associate pastor, intern pastor, senior pastor, as well as a couple of years as missionary in Central Utah to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He also served as an adjunct professor for Bethel Seminary, San Diego, teaching the online class Understanding the Cults. Reaching out to members of cults has been a primary focus of his life ever since he was in high school. His best friend growing up was part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As a result of the effort to reach him with the gospel, he developed a heart to reach foes within the LDS Church. In 2012, before moving to Utah, he started offering seminars on how to reach out to Mormons in churches and start the ministry People of a Free Gift. He's willing to schedule a speaking engagement with your group live or online. You can contact them at a Facebook page, People of a Free Gift, and there's a YouTube page there. So, uh, Jason, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Nick. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? 
Well, you kind of introduced it. My best friend growing up uh, was LDS, and so I was starting to go to church myself. And I, my small group leader and my youth group gave you and it was the God Makers uh, by Ed Decker. And uh, about five minutes into that video, I just was convinced I had to talk to my friend, and so um, that led to a number of conversations and kind of just stumbling as I went. But then, uh, praise God, he came out of that church. He became a, a believer in the biblical Jesus. And, you know, we're still friends to this day. He was my best friend in my, my wedding. And uh, after that, I uh, just had a friend who could show me where all the Mormon bookstores were in town. And so the two of us went down and got a copy of Mormon Doctrine by Bruce McConkie, started learning as much as we possibly can, started talking to pretty much anything, anyone I could get my hands on that was Mormon, um, Mormon missionaries or kids in my school, because I was still in high school at the time. And um, that just led to kind of a deeper understanding and heart for them. And then... Um, with this opportunity to teach the class at Bethel, I had to kind of expand, you know, beyond that to kind of becoming uh, somewhat of the, you know, the expert when it comes to all these cults. And so I've relied pretty heavily on the, the work of some of my friends. They're now my friends and uh, have had some uh, interesting encounters with most of the groups that I write about in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you've probably seen an email when I talk about getting about to get a a free copy of the King James version, for instance. And I mean, it, it's kind of that's when Christmas comes early this year because you get to go and you get to talk to the Mormons or whatever group it is and such. Now, when I did this, I posted on my Facebook page about it, and I had someone comment who gave a response. I think a lot of Christians would give him a church today and says, you know, we don't need to have all this infighting amongst us. I mean, the Mormons are just another denomination and such. And I'm sure you've seen that come up several times. Am I, are we just being petty? I mean, isn't this kind of like, you know, maybe like Catholics and Protestants or Presbyterians and Baptists or just, some silly little infighting that we don't really need to get involved with, right? Well, you kind of jumped into tactic number one in the section three of the book. Uh, I'm a Christian, too, because that is definitely, uh, particularly with the LDS, but with some of the other groups, too, Mm -hmm. they're making this really strong push to Mm -hmm. be recognized as Christian. But first of all, what you need to understand is while they're saying to us, I'm a Christian just like you, to their own people, they are saying we are the only Christians and that all those outside are not Christians. So mm-hmm. they're saying to their people the same thing that we're saying about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither of us really sees each other as legitimate Christians. And that makes sense because we don't agree on hardly anything. Um, and so the tactic that I suggest in that book, in my book is that you just assume that you take them at their word that they're a follower of Jesus. Because when, when they say, I'm a Christian too, you should just be able to assume that they follow and believe the teachings of Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. And most of them would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'd say, okay, well, I would love to sit down with you and just talk about what Jesus taught. Let's just open up the Word of God and just what Jesus taught, the words of Jesus, mm-hmm. and let's just have a good conversation about that. Mm-hmm. And so then you get to talk about the gospel and talk about salvation by grace and not by works. You get to talk about how Jesus is God and always has been God. You get to talk about his death on the cross and what did that mean and accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, even things like uh, that contradict their teachings, like uh, they believe in eternal marriage. You know, that you get married for all time and eternity and that families are forever. And in Matthew 22, Jesus explicitly said that they neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven, but they're like the the angels, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you get a lot of things that create good discussions. And instead of it being like an awkward or maybe offensive thing that you might come back um, confrontational, you can just say, Hey, okay, let's just talk about Jesus and what he taught and um, invite him into a discussion about those things. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should be clear about the outset. I mean, what what exactly is a cult? Because let's face it, there are things like denominational differences where we can have good and heated debates. There are many secondary issues, the age of the earth, uh, the, the the details of the return of Christ, uh, how baptism should be done, things of that sort. And we can all disagree on these issues, but still come back at the end of the day and say, yeah, but we're all Christians. What makes the cults different? Well, for me, and I, the entire first section of the book mm-hmm. is on what is a cult. And um, because I wanted, just like you said, be clear about that right from the mm-hmm. beginning. What am I using to come to that conclusion. And so for me, I've uh, changed my mind a number of times on this, but where I've landed is that it's not even so much about orthodox beliefs or not, but it's about abusive practices, Mm -hmm. things like mind control, uh, the strong belief in authority and you can't question authority, uh, the uh, killing of thoughts uh, and kind of keeping a manipulative hold on the people. Um, that's where I've landed. Now, along with that, most of the groups that I discuss in the book do fall outside like the core, you know, non-negotiable beliefs that make you a Christian. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a few of the groups that I discuss that are like really close when it comes to like Orthodox but they just are really abusive and they practice mind control to like to the T. And so that for me was the biggest uh, criteria. And in the book, I, in that the last part of that section, I actually have a checklist where mm-hmm. I go over the material where I just, it, it's called, you might be a cult if, and, mm-hmm. and so, you know, trying to make it a little bit lighthearted, but I go over the things that we've discussed and say, okay, you can just go. And I've had people who are attending Christian churches who have gone through that section. Or I had one guy who was in my class at Bethel Seminary who came back and he said, you know what? I started feeling like as we started talking about this that you were describing my church. 
And then they went online and found out that other people had come to the conclusion that that church was a cult. And, um, and so I found that this is really helpful, not just, you know, for Christians reaching out to cults, but Christians realizing what does it mean to be a part of a healthy church? Um, you might believe all the right things, but if you're abusing your people, then that's just as bad as some of these other groups. Yeah, when I was in Bible college, I attended Johnson University, which is part of a restoration movement for churches mm-hmm. of Christ and such. And I mean, I disagree with them on issues like baptism and such, but there have been a pair of orthodoxy and such, as Hank Hanegraaff and the Christian Research Institute would say. And but then, uh, well, as well, I found out also about the group, the International Church of Christ, which we considered an interesting part of the time because as far as orthodoxy in many respects, they'd hold to many orthodox doctrines, but they are certainly a very controlling group. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the groups that I discuss. And, uh, you know, my first run-in with them was when I was in college, and I was a part of a group that would go witnessing on the campus. And this other group that was also part of a, a group, a, a club on campus, they came over to the table, just paired off with us and just started arguing right off the shoot uh-huh. with us. And then one of those guys, he came back later and he said, hey, I got to talk to you guys because some of the stuff that you guys were saying just really hit me. And he ended up accepting Christ. He came out of that group, but then that group started harassing him Mm. and almost to the point where he was like thinking, I I need to go to another college or, you know, what am I going to do? So, yeah, they are incredibly like manipulative and abusive to their people. Mm -hmm. Uh, One group also, I think, should say something about because when I saw them mentioned as a cult, I was a bit suspicious of it because this is a group that when I worked at the Christian Research Institute, I was asked to study one time and I did. I read a book they put out called Questions on Doctrine and Mm -hmm. I didn't agree with everything in there but at the same time, I didn't find it heretical and that was the Seventh-day Adventist group and I I was very pleased I got a session but you didn't come, but you said yeah, this one's not like the others, and you seem to indicate you're not convinced that it's entirely a cult, but their teachings are a bit aberrant sometimes. Well, what tipped it over the edge was actually, what, like I said, the mind control thing. Mm-hmm. And while that may not be true of like every single mm-hmm. Seventh-day Adventist congregation, yeah. Mm-hmm. As an organization of, as a whole, uh, they they have that problem. They have mm-hmm. that issue. And if you, it's really the origins of the Seventh-day Adventist mm-hmm. that cause a lot of the, the foundational problems that they're still wrestling with today. I, th- I feel like they're trying to almost bury their past and, and move on. But because of the foundation that Ellen White laid, uh-huh. it, it's really, really hard to do that. And I don't know if you're aware or your listeners are aware, but um, those who witnessed Ellen White when she supposedly got her revelations, her prophecies, they said that she would stop breathing and blinking. Uh-huh. And that that's really scary to me. And 
another thing is that I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, she taught the scapegoat doctrine mm-hmm. using the data yeah. atonement imagery. And that means that she taught that ultimately our sins are going to be uh, put on Satan, that Satan mm-hmm. is the sin bearer. And that creates really huge problems when mm-hmm. you're talking about orthodox beliefs. Mm-hmm. Now let's uh, start talking some about some of the groups that are more prominent that many of us know of. And I mean, let's talk, talk about with the Mormons, for instance. I mean, I've, I suspect that Saturday you'd probably meet a lot of Christians that are like the comment that I got. Well, you know, the Mormons, they're such nice people, and they, they come to your house. And I think we all have to grant that Mormons, for the most part, are really nice people. And, you know, you go to their churches, it seems so normal and such, aren't they just like another denomination like us? No, uh, and that's another one that uh, you mentioned the restoration movement and Hope International, where I ended up going to undergrad, I also disagreed with a lot of their teachings. They're they're part of that whole restoration movement, the Christian Church, Church of Christ. And that's actually, I found some interesting tie-ins while I was there and learning about like the history of that movement Mm -hmm. to Mormonism. And uh, mostly in the character of Sidney Rigdon, who converted his entire congregation to follow Joseph Smith. And uh, he was a Church of Christ pastor. Mm-hmm. And um, But the Mormons, uh, Joseph Smith took this idea that the church needed to be restored. Like the church that Jesus established no longer existed on the face of the earth. So different than what like Luther was saying, it needed to be reformed. Uh, the, the restoration movement said, no, it doesn't exist. It's mm-hmm. completely apostate and it needs to be restored. And so then he took that and then he took this interest in the native American burial grounds near his home and then he claimed that an angel led him to one of those burial grounds and showed him uh, the the reformed Egyptian text that now has become known as the Book of Mormon. And so he created like this whole new text that went with it that uh, start and then had his own revelations. And so basically on every level. I would say that the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they fit every single criteria of a cult to a T. It's just that they're really good at it. Mm-hmm. They're they're the best that I've seen at it because mm-hmm. they they hide all of it under this uh, really attractive and really efficient uh, clothing. And so, yes, they are extremely nice, but you have to really get down to, like, what is the motive? Um, Are they being nice and are they doing these good things because that's part of how they're going to earn favor with God and get to the celestial kingdom where ultimately they can become, you know, gods over their own planet and have their own spirit children that will worship them in the future? Mm -hmm. Or is it... You know, that they, or is it coming from the same place that we, we do? We would say we do good works because we love Jesus Christ and because we're grateful that he has saved us. You know, we have eternal life. If you ask a Mormon the simple question, do you know that you have eternal life? 
I've never met a Mormon who would say, yes, absolutely. They would say, I'm trying, or I hope so, or they would just start, you know, kind of backpedaling on their testimony or their, their, their doctrine. Yeah. And what I noticed also is that Mormons, they're getting a lot more press nowadays because, I mean, back in 2012, we had a candidate for a major party that was a Mormon running. And mm-hmm. when Prop 8 was going on in California, I think most of us were actually thankful for Mormons were working together with Christians over there because on many social issues, we could side with the Mormons entirely. And that, the great danger is while we can side with them on many political and social issues, that doesn't equal theological issues. You know, I, I started this ministry back in 2012, mm-hmm. and I was traveling to different churches and teaching seminars and um Oh, I got that question all the time about Mitt Romney. I had people that I had pastors of those churches tell me that people in the churches told them specifically, I want to go, but I'm not going to go because I don't want to be confused because I want to vote for Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> And I don't know if you're aware of this, but like mm-hmm. reputable organizations like uh, the Billy Graham Association or, you know, Franklin Graham Samaritan's Purse, they actually right before the election, they deleted every reference to Mormonism as a cult from their, their website. Mm-hmm. And then after he lost, they put it all back. Mm-hmm. And so Christians really were torn off of that. But that was an issue not so much because I agree with you that on most social issues, moral issues, we would agree with Mormons probably more than we would anybody else who's been a president for like the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but um, at the same time, the real question was, is Mitt Romney going to be the president or at the time was Gordon B. Hinckley going to be the president? Um because Mitt Romney had gone through the temple ceremony and he had pledged his complete and total allegiance and everything they had to the Mormon church. And so it really raised the question if there was an issue and the Mormon prophet felt like this was an important enough issue that he would go to Romney and say, this is how, this is what needs to happen. Would, would Mitt Romney make that decision based off of his role as president or would he uh, submit to his authority and the prophet of the LDS church? So that, that was really, I think that the main issue for a lot of the Christians at that time. Yeah. I think another big issue we can raise on both sides so we need to realize is that Mitt Romney was a very successful businessman and such. And I think a lot of us can think that, you know, if you're in a cult where, you know, you must be easily duped and brainwashed and things like that and such. And no, you can be a very smart individual and get trapped in a cult, can't you? 
Absolutely. And this is a great time to talk about uh, the difference between brainwashing Mm -hmm. and mind control. Mm -hmm. Brainwashing is like when you see in a movie and a person is being tortured and they're trying to get information out of them or Mm -hmm. they're trying to get them to change their their opinion about something. In Mm -hmm. those situations, the person knows they're being uh, brainwashed and they they change their mind in order to save their own life Mm -hmm. or to preserve themselves. So they they completely change their thinking for self-preservation purposes. Mind control is so subtle that neither the person is being done to you or the person who's doing it have to have any idea that it's going on. It's just a part of the organization and how they do things to the point where that's just how it's done. This is what, how I learned this. This is how this was done for me. And so I'm just passing that on to the next person. Mm-hmm. And so the Mormon church, like everything about that organization is completely based off of this culture of mind control to the point where people aren't thinking for themselves. And so you can have a person who comes in because they genuinely want to know Jesus Christ. And then they're, they're taught all these doctrines on the surface but then as they become part of this culture it just becomes part of their belief system part of their way of life and as they learn more uh, then they just kind of go along with the flow and so uh, at the extreme of this is when people start dressing the same acting the same uh, looking the same talking the same and it becomes quite scary and you might notice you know within the LDS church if you go on a Sunday morning there's an expected dress you know code um, and if you've been through the temple then you give you get your sacred garments and you're mm-hmm. supposed to are those underneath your clothing at all times I mean there's like very few exceptions to that so there, I mean, it's definitely a part of their culture. Mm-hmm. We've had on recently, uh, we had two people on, one the first hour, one the second hour. Corey Miller was on the first hour, and second hour we had Lynn Wilder on. She'd been on, okay. she's been on the show before talking about Fairbrook leaving Mormonism. And I can never say Lynn Wilder, when she was on the first time, her book, Unbearing Grace, is a very, very in-depth look at what goes on in Mormonism. And and she was a BYU professor and saw pretty much everything. Yes, absolutely. And uh, if uh, I would highly recommend not only the book, but also uh, their original DVD that tells the story of Adams Road and how uh, Micah uh, started the, his own family and uh, several missionaries he was on a mission with. They came out of the, the Mormon church and how that happened. It's really, really a great documentary. And we've had Adams Road on the show before, too. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. You know, what I think so many people miss with all these groups also is just how vastly different we are. I mean, they, they use the exact same language that we do many times. They talk about Jesus. They talk about the Son of God. They talk about salvation. They talk about the Trinity. But we always need to be asking, what do you mean by that, don't we? 
Absolutely. Um, and in each section, when I cover the various uh, cults in the book, I, I end the, the section with the terminology section so that you can begin to understand how these groups use those terms differently. And the, the problem with Mormonism, just to, to use an example, is that the average Christian will go up to the average Mormon and they'll ask the typical gospel questions. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Do you believe that he rose, died for your sins and rose again? from the dead yes i do well i don't know what else to ask you because you know you answered right to all the questions but they meant something different by almost every single one of the terms in that in those questions Mm -hmm. and so the christian assumes that they mean one thing and the lds person means something completely different they're having two completely different conversations but the christian walks away thinking oh well you know i don't understand why they say mormons aren't christian Mm mm-hmm and you were talking also about the Book of Mormon a bit there and such. Something I have that's interesting. Had we just had the Book of Mormon alone, you know, Mormonism could have been just seen as an aberrant, aberrant movement, such as some weird beliefs about Jesus coming to North America, maybe, perhaps. But it's later on, after Joseph Smith saw how successful that was, like, I tell you, if you want to see the very crazy stuff, you got to get into the Doctrines and Covenants. Yes, uh, Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price um, are there other scriptures. And Doctrine and Covenants, like you pointed out, is uh, Joseph's personal revelations. And uh, Grant Palmer is a great example. You can look him up on YouTube. Uh, he taught... Um, like the the Mormon like seminary type classes that they have, and uh, he was in certain departments, and uh, he he still, to my knowledge, is still Mormon, but he has a very different view of a lot of things. But he has this lecture where he shows where Joseph. Uh, where he got all of his um, material. Mm -hmm. And he shows how Joseph's theology changed over time and to where if you read the Book of Mormon, it reads more like 19th century American Christianity uh, than it does modern-day Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the reason why they give it to you as a Christian. You know, you read it, it's supposed to sound familiar, you're supposed to get the burning of the bosom and then become Mormon uh, because, you know, hey, this is, you know, just a continuation of Christianity kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, Doctrine and Covenants is when Joseph, especially when he got to like the Nauvoo period, uh, he started becoming really delusional uh, and his revelations became more and more extreme. That's where like the plural marriage stuff became in. That's where like the eternal progression, um, meaning like God had a father uh, who was his God and he had a father and, and that goes back infinitely. And then he used that to say like, well, God has a body, flesh and bones and you can become a God one day just like he is. Um so it was at that point where even his own followers, some of them, they started trying to expose some of these things and started questioning. He had a lot of splinter groups. And then he ultimately, you know, dies um, after he's imprisoned. And then, you know, there's a kind of a assassination attempt kind of thing. And then um, him and his brother Hiram, they had guns that somebody smuggled into them. And so there's a whole shootout um, that happens. And uh, both of them, you know, were killed. 
And so it was really later on in his ministry, uh, his life, that he really went off the deep end and formed a lot of the doctrines that kind of make Mormonism so distinctive today. Mm. Now, we, we shouldn't spend the whole time talking about Mormonism and such. And if you all want to hear more about Mormonism, we do have past shows on Mormonism, but in a few weeks' time, we're going to have I think it's going to be our first sun, first Saturday in July. We're going to have Eric Johnson on our show. He co-wrote a book recently with uh, Sean McDowell, Sharing Jesus with Mormons. And he's going to be on talking about Mormonism. But let's talk about another group, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses and such. And Walter Martin, former president of the Christian Research Institute, said, The average Jehovah's Witness can turn the average Christian into a doctrinal oppressor in 90 seconds or less. The sad thing is, he's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would add to that that most of the Jehovah's Witnesses that I've talked to take a very different tone and posture than uh, like the Mormons I've talked to. They come across as very condescending. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's silly that you believe what you do about the Bible and about Jesus. You know, we know the truth. I'm going to explain this to you so that you can stop being silly, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I definitely uh, they will jump right into doctrines like the Trinity um, to try and show you verses that describe Jesus as like the firstborn or the begotten. Um or things like that, and so that the, the the Christian usually has no idea what, maybe they've never even seen those verses before or thought about it, and so yes, they they get put on the defensive really quickly, and uh, even things like uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses teaching that Jesus didn't die on a cross, but on it was impaled on a stake. Um, I had a member of my own church here in Montana who met with me in my office, and his wife was concerned for him because he was meeting with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he was really concerned about this because he was starting to believe that 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 was the truth that Jesus was impaled on a stake and the purpose that something like that serves it may seem like kind of like uh what difference does that make kind of thing to a lot of us mm-hmm. but once a person gets convinced that they've been told something that's false then it opens them up to say well what else is there that I haven't heard before mm-hmm. and that, I think, is the purpose of the whole Jesus and pale on a stake thing for the Jehovah's Witnesses, is it's a way to get qu- Christians questioning what they've been taught and even the authority of the Bible. And that puts them right in their lap of, okay, well, what, el- what other doctrines do I have wrong? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and that's uh, also one of the reasons why I, I encourage us to be very careful with one another what doctrines we make absolutely essential. I get questions from doubters so many times, and a lot of times there are going to be questions about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Yes. And one of the things I write back is to say, you know, I'm I'm looking at these things that's causing you doubt, and there's nothing in here about Jesus. Hmm. does any of this disprove that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, I really want them to think about that and such. Yeah. Uh, what What is the foundation of what you believe? 
And we have to be very careful when we're teaching young people. Another way I've told, I've suggested we should be very careful about, for instance, is if when we're telling our children to save sex for marriage, and we say, you know, if you go out and you have sex before you get married, you will feel so guilty about this. Where I hate to tell you this, but a lot of kids don't. And if you tell them that, then they, and they finally don't say, geez, I wonder what else they haven't been telling me. Hmm. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, when we had some of them visiting our apartment when I lived with a roommate before I got married, we go over their book together, what does the Bible really teach? And we were a bit surprised because they always liked how we answer the questions because we had good, thorough discussions with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we ended up going to a Kingdom Horror service with them one time because they advised us. Eh, sure, why not? Well, we found out why they were so impressed. And I tell people, one of the scariest experiences I have ever had in my life is being in a kingdom hall. Because you, you talked about indoctrination and brainwashing. That is going on. You have monotone music being piped through some recording somewhere that you don't know where it is. You have songs being sung about the apostates being destroyed. You have people regularly saying, we are so thankful for a faithful and discreet slave providing food at a proper time. And when they answer the questions, they answer verbatim. From the book. It is frightening. Right. And I've never been in a kingdom hall, but everybody who has, uh, has described exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think something worth mentioning about having the witnesses over. And this is something that we did when we had Mormons visiting us. Because my roommate is also interested in apologetics. And we did this kind of thing together. And that is, I mean, this is this especially hit home when we had Mormon missionaries because, you know, they're off on their two-year journey. They don't have much money, things like that. Every time they were coming over, we'd go out before they came over. We'd go to Little Caesars. We'd pick up a pizza. We'd bring it over to get over. We'd get something like Gatorade, for instance, for us all to drink together. And we'd have a discussion. And there was even one time when they got together and said, hey, um, we're not going to be able to come today because our car is in the shop and such. Something's wrong with it. And I said, where do you all live? I'll come and I'll pick you up myself. And they agreed to that. And while we're there, while I'm driving to and fro, I'm getting to talk with them and making sure to talk about the gospel because I know they I've got them hostage. There is nowhere they can run. I've got this conversation going on. But we always try to be the best host we could to our guests to give them a loving place they could come to and talk easily. Yeah, that's really wise. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was wondering if you had any, any further comments about that or, like, I mean, have you done the same thing or, 
<laughs> yeah, Justin, uh, bottom line is like inviting them into a discussion and seeing it as a long haul uh, investment. Like you, you said, there's times where you, you only have so much time with them and you know you have one conversation to try and get it out and you don't know if it's going to be go anywhere. And so you want to get straight to the gospel. And uh, that's one of the reasons I actually wrote the book is because there's a lot of great material out there when it comes to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and things, but it seems like a lot of the tactics focus in on why it's wrong mm -hmm. um, or, you know, how to, you know, talk about Joseph Smith or whatever. And there's nothing wrong. It, I know people who use those tactics and they're effective for them. And uh, God uses all sorts of different things. But for me, I found it more effective to focus on the gospel and Jesus and grace and um, get there as fast as I can in the discussion. Because one of the big problems uh, in when you're talking about like Mormons or anybody in these groups is that because they've made it like a the group is connected and intertwined so much with Jesus that if the group goes, then Jesus goes with them. Oh, and yeah. so most of the people become atheist or agnostic. And so my conviction is I don't care so much about whether they're going, where they're going to church. I care about whether they have a relationship with Jesus and they believe the gospel because if they believe the gospel and the Holy spirit because it moves into their heart, then he's going to do a lot of the damage control that's going to end up with them leaving over time. But if they leave, I want them leaving with Jesus, not, you know, them leaving and then going off into atheism or agnosticism. So, that's why I invite them into discussion. I get straight into the gospel, uh, into topics like Jesus, grace, um, you know, and, and things like that. So that we get right into the essentials, we get right into the gospel, and then it invites into other discussions if we have time. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point because one of the things I also try to do with the cults is – I try to just build up the Bible because if you go and you knock down, say, the Book of Mormon, you give a most thorough, successful trashing of it whatsoever, where the thing is when these people move away from that man, they have nothing, very nothing to fall back onto. And I've met many atheist agnostics and such who used to belong to cults, and now they don't want anything to do with any religion whatsoever because... It's all just a sham. You know, here's an interesting thing. You know, you brought up like the Book of Mormon mm -hmm. and like the Jehovah's Witnesses have New World Translation. And most of these other groups have their own scriptures of their own translation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I show you how to do in section to our tactic number two mm -hmm. is how to use that group's own scripture to teach them Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so take the, the Book of Mormon, for example, the missionaries come over and the question they always want to ask you, have you prayed about the Book of Mormon? Because, you know, their scripture, Moroni 10, it has this challenge, you know, read these things and pray about it and ask God if these things are not true and he will reveal to you whether they're true or not. And that's supposed to be like this burning of the bosom as they describe it. And that's the Holy Spirit testifying whether it's true. Well, a lot of Christians don't want to pray about whether the Book of Mormon is true or not. And so 
it, it creates this another awkward moment where you either tell them flat out, like, I'm not going to do that. And here's why, or you go along with them and then you open yourself up to potentially dangerous spiritual stuff. Um, and so my tactic with that is I just turn it back on them and I ask them, Oh, okay. So have you had a testimony of the book of Mormon? And they'll say, yeah, you know, and I'll say, okay, tell me about it, you know, and I'll get, ask them some questions to make sure that I get them to agree that they believe everything that the book of Mormon says is true. And then I'll show, show them. And I have these verses in the book where it teaches things like salvation by grace, or it teaches the Trinity, or it teaches, you know, the divinity of Jesus, or that there's no other gods, um, all these core essential Christian doctrines, or even denials of their current doctrines. Mm-hmm. And um, then if they have this choice that they're kind of stuck with, you know, where like, okay, do I believe what that Mormon scripture says, or do I believe what the the Mormon church is telling me? And it creates this weird, you know, cognitive dissonance in them. And the same thing when I was talking about the gospels and taking them to the gospels, you create this tension in them. Do I believe what my leaders are telling me or do I believe what Jesus said? Uh-huh. And that's an even worse tension for, for them to be in because their church is supposed to be about Jesus. It's supposed to be his church. And yet they're teaching things that are completely contrary to what Jesus taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to read about how we approach them instead of just the answers itself. I mean, this show got started. Actually, one of the first interviews we got in the very first month, Greg Kokor came on to talk about his book, Tactics. And I'm guessing you'd probably recommend that book as well. Absolutely. Um, I've heard, you know, I, I have never actually sat down and read Tactics, but it's a great book. I've listened to a lot of, like, the his teachings on the book and totally love a lot of the, the, the things that he says. And that's really the influence, the idea. The section three of the book is called Tactics, and I talk about six tactics specifically to uh, talking with members of these groups. And so we've talked about a few of them. Uh, that I'm a Christian too. Have you prayed about the Book of Mormon? And then tactic number three is the reliability of the Bible, because like you said, most of these groups have mm-hmm. convinced their people that in effect, it's like the first step of being a cult leader. You got to convince people that the Bible is not valid in some way, shape or form. And so because they believe that they don't read it, they don't look at it. And so you, we talking about why we can trust the Bible and getting into things like manuscripts and reliability is important for these groups. And then tactic number four is how do you communicate grace to the religious mind? And tactic number five is explaining the Trinity because, uh, one, a lot of Christians can't articulate the Trinity without accidentally, you know, articulating some form of uh, heresy that was condemned in the early church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and But it's also a thing that it's kind of like the trump card that these groups hold, that if they feel like they're losing a discussion, they'll bring up the Trinity because 
uh, like I said, it's one of those things that's hard to explain and it's easy to tie a Christian into a pretzel. So I go uh, into depth on the Trinity and how do you articulate that and explain it to people. And then tactic number six is I mentioned earlier how some of these groups take this condescending attitude, you know, like you believe in Jesus and that's great, but we know more about Jesus or you go to church. That's great. But we, I believe I belong to the one true church, you know, or you believe the Bible. That's great. But we have all this other revelation from God and we have a living prophet and all this stuff. So I use the tactic in the book of Hebrews to basically take the tone that you do this in a loving way. You don't want to be condescending back, but show them how Jesus is everything you need and he's better than anything they have to offer you and in fact that he's already given you things that they don't even possess you know like i mentioned they don't know that they have eternal life whereas Mm -hmm. we do you know they're they're constantly striving and trying to please this god and they never know where they stand with him but yet we do Mm-hmm. And so that's something, you know, scripture says it's thoroughly equips you for every good work. So, you know, why do I need your other scripture? Um, Jesus said, you know, he gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So what exactly do you have to offer me that's better than what I already have in Jesus? And just using that as a way of showing them like, no, actually, like you should become more like me because, you know, you don't even have what I already have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to give a brief aside here since I brought up Greg Coker on tactics, but I, I have seen some this past week when I was fed uh, Melinda Penner, the reinforcer, did suffer far sometime earlier this year, I think, and she's got a whole lot of hospital bills and such. So to my listeners out there, I really do encourage you, if you like the stuff from Stand to Reason, go look into what's happened to her. She's got a GoFundMe set up to help with hospital expenses and things like that. And it'd be very great for you to contribute. And I think what you're saying, it does go back to the whole thing about, you know, building up the Bible. And one of the big things I said when the Mormons came by, they said, they said what, do you, what do you think about the Book of Mormon? Because they, they knew I'd read it before. I said, mm. it's, it seems to rely a whole lot on the KJV. I mean, I was not going to give my full accurate opinion because if I did that, the meeting would have ended right then and there. Right. But I said, it's a lot of KJV, but I struggle to find anything historical in it. And then I compared it to the book of Acts and described Sir William Ramsay and what he did and how he became converted based on the book of Acts and saying, can, can y'all give me anything that's like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. That the Bible is, it describes real people in real places, mm-hmm. things that really happened. And we have every reason to believe what it says, because I mean, just take the disciples and the way that the gospel writers portrayed themselves mm-hmm. in the gospels. 
I mean, they, you have women who are the ones who, you know, viewed the empty tomb, which is the criteria of embarrassment. And it, you got the disciples constantly fumbling over things. They're not able to heal people because of their lack of faith. You got them arguing over who's the greatest. You got, you know, Peter, you know, getting told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You know, you, you have him rejecting or denying that he even knows Jesus on an oath. I mean, it, it just reeks of honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very distinguishing because like every other like history of the ancient world, if you just like look the way that they portrayed their statues or their leaders or, you know, the things that they wrote about them, they say history is written by the victors and they always put the most colorful light on themselves. But, uh, the, the gospel writers and even the Old Testament, you know, are heroes of the faith. You know, Noah got drunk in his vineyard, you know, and you got David who committed adultery with Bathsheba. You got all of the characters in the Bible, they have their flaws. And so it's completely honest and it's reliable. Like you said with Sir William Ramsey, that's a great story mm-hmm. of a person who tried to set out to show that Luke didn't know what he's talking about. And he comes back and he goes, this guy had to have been here because he describes things that only a local with no. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think also one of the other important reasons of doing this and being my boy is that we don't often get, you know, if you and I have a trouble with our church sometime and such, that's okay. We'll mm-hmm. go to the next church down the street and such. But when someone leaves the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and such, they're not just leaving a church. They are leaving their job, most likely. They are leaving their culture. They are leaving their friends. They are leaving their family, everything. I mean, I heard a story about a guy who was convinced by an apologist that the Mormon church was false, and he gave him a, got him a plane ticket to fly out of Utah and go to New York. And they also said, do you know what happened to that guy? Says, no. He flew to New York and he hung himself. Mm. That, I mean, I'm not sure how accurate that story is, but it's easily believable, unfortunately. Yeah, it's always the person's fault. Um, they couldn't hack it, you know, the requirements they had sent in their life. Um, they were evil. <laughs> uh, they, they, it's always the person's fault. The organization can never be wrong. It can never be questioned. It's never their fault. There's no legitimate reason for leaving the group. And, you know, on top of that, all those social things are absolutely true, especially in a place like Utah. Um, I had people who did say that they felt like they had to move out of the state because they felt like there was nothing there for them anymore, and they could just couldn't deal with the harassment. They they couldn't find an open door anywhere for them because they left, and including on top of that, how many times their their family is counseled to like divorce them, um, disown them, all those types of things, and so you got those real social consequences. But on top of that, they're told and most of these groups do this that like uh in a very real way like a lot of these groups are universalist like they believe that everybody's going to go to a level of heaven except for the apostates mm-hmm. and the apostates are those who knew the truth and then they left it and they rejected it so hanging over their head if they're mormon is the idea that they're going to go to outer darkness 
like they're one of the exclusive few and chosen, you know, that are apostate and they've rejected the truth completely. And so now like they're going to go to outer darkness. So yeah, it's not as simple as like you leave the Mormon church, you go to the Baptist church down the street. Um, it's not as simple as that. They, they teach their people like, Hey, this is the only truth. You leave us, you leave Jesus, you leave all of it. We're the only legitimate ones. And you're going to go to hell on top of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you said also is that uh, we need to build up the Bible. Definitely. And that groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, especially like to play for Trinity as a Trump card. Uh, one of the things I think that sadly leads to a great success of a church is the great failure, I mean, the great success of a cult is the great failure of the church. That we really don't teach our members anymore. I mean, so many sermons, they're all about, you know, like how to be a good person and how to live your life. I, you can probably count on one hand the number of sermons you've heard at a church on the Trinity, for instance. Well, um, being that I'm a pastor myself, I'm painfully aware of that. And I'm, I'm always asking, I don't know where these pastors are thinking that their people are going to learn anything about the Bible because uh, they, all they do is topical sermons and they kind of tend to rotate on just a very ha- slight handful of uh, topics over and over again. And, you know, they almost portray as like the reason they do that is because like almost like the Bible's boring or something. And um, so I wonder where these people think that they're going to learn the Bible. But when I craft my sermons, I do verse by verse teaching and we've been going through the gospel. So we'll hit history. We'll hit apologetics. We'll hit theology. We'll hit all these things. And I mean, we talked about the Trinity a ton going through the gospels because you constantly are tripping over statements of Jesus claiming to be equal with the father. And and then yet, on the other hand, you have the statements where he's saying, like, the Father is greater than I, and I submit to the Father, and I don't do anything of my own authority. And so, you know, putting those statements together, and the fact that Jesus is God, but he's also human, and what does that mean, and how does the Trinity work, and how, how do we believe that? And so, on lots of other apologetic questions and issues that come up, that questions that people are asking about certain passages, you know, we need to expose our people to these things. Because another thing that happens is like you got kids that grow up in youth group and they have a great time and then they've never really been uh, some of them to like adult church, you know, and so then we expect that they're going to like go move away, go to college, somehow have the motivation to go find a church that they've never really been a part of and survive in their faith. And then meanwhile, they're going to college where they have an antagonistic professor who brings up something simple, or it could even just be before they get to college. Now they go on the internet and Uh they go on YouTube or Google and Uh they get exposed to like zeitgeist film, which is just ridiculous nonsense. Right. But they, they, they don't check out the facts and they just assume that what they're telling them is true. Like, hey, how come nobody ever told me that Jesus is like Osiris and Nimrod and, you know, Zoroaster put together, you know, like, <laughs> I, you know, and so they, if we don't expose people to, to these problems or these questions and talk them through and show them the answers and that the Bible's reliable, I don't know what we're thinking we're doing for our people. 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, it sounds incredible. I mean, are you actually saying that maybe pizza parties and rock concerts aren't enough to prevent kids from atheist professors and proverbial sex, drugs, and rock and roll? <laughs> I, I would be saying that, yes. Yeah, I, I, that's a horn I've been tooting for quite some time and such, and I, I hope the church will wake up before it's too late. And such. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you got uh, Jason Oaks here. We're talking about his book, Sharing Jesus with the Cops. But if you're here next week, we're going to have an hour-long show on here. We're going to have Danny Aiken is going to be my guest. We're going to be talking about his book, God on Sex, How Christians Should View Sexuality and Such. It's a very in-depth look at the Song of Songs, especially. So if that topic interests you, which is pretty much every guy in America, then you can back here next week, and we'll have a good discussion about it. But for now, let's get back to to uh, Jason Oaks talking about uh, this. And so, I mean, Jason, I mean, the thing is here that I've been saying that wouldn't it just be so wonderful if Jehovah's Witnesses could encounter someone more often who would say, okay, tell it to me some about this Trinity thing then. And have a person like, sure, be glad to. What do you want to know? Right. Absolutely. And there was even a funny meme you can see on the internet for it. Have some some Mormons, and you have, see a picture of them, and they say, excuse me, sir, would you like to talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And the bottom is that part of man saying, sure. What would you like to know? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely, it's not it's not complicated, and I think we scare ourselves half to death about you know sharing our faith, but it just doesn't make any sense if you you know say I, I like baseball, yeah. it, it, but for me to not ever talk about baseball would be weird because yeah. in what sense can you say like oh I really like baseball yeah. and never talk about it? If you say like you have a relationship with the God of the universe and you've been forgiven by Him of your sins and you believe that he did all these amazing things on our behalf, then why in the world would we not be talking about that? Yeah. And I'd also say at the same time, why in the world would we not be wanting to learn about that? I mean, if you're a fan of a professional sport, I mean, I, I'm, I don't care much for sports. Maybe if the Braves go to a World Series, I might be watching or something. And if Mike got in touch with me and said, hey, uh, I'm going to go to a Braves game here. Would you like to go? I'd say, sure, I'll go. That, but, um, that, nah, I don't really have that much interest. But if you are a sports fan, you're going to know exactly what your team is doing. You're going to know the stats of your favorite players and such. If you're a fan of a TV show, like you know the characters, you know the plots, you know so, so many of the episodes. I mean, we've got so many superhero movies out there, and I'm not complaining about it. I like those movies, too. And you got people who know the whole system behind the comic books and such. All this stuff. And yet, how many people are out there don't know a thing and don't bother learning a thing about what they say is the most important area of their life? Absolutely. Amen. Now, another thing you talked about a while ago is the Internet. And I think a lot of ex-cultists like Lynn Wilder and others would say one of the most 
dangerous things for the cults today is the internet. Because everything that they tried to keep secret, it's now out there, front and center, and anyone can see it. Absolutely. And I would say, particularly with Mormonism, they have people that are leaving in droves because of this. And their response is really telling because their tactic uh, has been to start releasing these gospel topic essays on the, the Mormon website and dealing with things like Heavenly Mother or Joseph Smith's Seer Stone or um, some of these more like embarrassing you know, topics. And the, the irony of that and the reason why so many LDS people are getting upset is because for years and years and years, ministries like Gerald and Sandra Tanner at Utah Lighthouse Ministry or Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson at Mormonism Research Ministry or any of the others, they've been showing, telling them about all of these things. They've been pointing them out. And the LDS Church has just for, for years said that's just anti-Mormon lies. They're making these things up. It's not true. And... And yet they come out all of a sudden just like, yep, surprise, surprise, it's true. And they even pull out Joseph Smith's ear stone from the vault and, you know, like they had it the whole time. And uh, so a lot of LDS people are getting really upset about that. And they're really uh, conflicted in some way. I think that what the Mormon church is doing is almost hitting a reset button. And they're realizing, yeah, a lot of people are going to leave. But the ones that stay are like true blue. They're with us and they're not going to leave and we can build another, a, a new foundation off of them and move forward. Mm -hmm. I, I really think that that is their tactic right now. And uh, some of these other groups is kind of the same thing. Now, some of the other groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their people so convinced that you shouldn't look at anything that's not Jehovah's Witness material that, you know, like if you ever try and hand them a tract, they will not even like reach out and like take it from you. They will just like let it fall to the ground because they are not supposed to even like touch that stuff. They have them so convinced that it is automatically false because it's not from the Jehovah's Witnesses. I remember years ago I was on a service called Power Talk and Jehovah's Witnesses were on it, it was kind of like a chat program but it also had voice on there as well and so many Jehovah's Witnesses were on it and those of us who were Christians we often play this game I, I would refer to it as kind of like the JW races and such where we'd go into one of our rooms, and we were in our room, and we'd see, we can't measure how long does it take before we get bounced, thrown out of a room, and such. Hmm. And usually only within a few seconds and such, we'd be gone. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, my, my wife was asking me last night something about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and this could be something else interesting to discuss them another way that the Witnesses, I think, are in trouble. And she was asking me about their eschatology. What do they think about end times and such? And I started talking about, to her about 144,000 and things like that and such. And said, well, what's going to happen when the last member of 144,000 dies because they think Jesus has to return before all of 144,000 die. I said, 
That is a question everyone is wondering about right now. Well, they'll probably just flat out deny like they have in the past. I mean, they're, they're false prophecies in the past. They just flat out after a said and done, they just look at their people and like, we never said that. You know, your 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 leader of your church or whatever, they 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 may have said that, but we didn't say that. Mm-hmm. You know, you misinterpreted what we said, and so you should be more careful in how you. <laughs> they just like throw it on the people again. The organization is never ever ever wrong. Mm-hmm. It's never their fault. They have no flaws. They have no errors. If if you have a problem, it's your problem. It's not them. Mm-hmm. It, I just think it's going to be so hard for them to do that this time because they've had it in pretty much every single magazine that they've published. Okay, but about that, uh, the members are not supposed to be reading past magazines, mm. even the Watchtower, because of that very problem. Uh, they, whatever, what matters is what we're saying right now. This is why we have the brethren up in Brooklyn, you know, that they are the faithful and discreet slave. They're the ones who interpret God's word for you. They're the one who hear from him directly. Um, your relationship with God is completely dependent upon them and what they're saying right now. Don't worry about what they said 20 years ago. Don't worry about what they said last week. You worry about what they're saying right now. Mm. Uh, I haven't even been aware of it, trying to keep members from reading the old stuff and such. That's, that's very interesting and definitely very revealing on their part. And again, this is going to be another group that the Internet's going to be a, a hard thing for them to deal with. And we had on here not too long ago Sean Kalaki and Rob Bowman. And if you've never heard Sean Kalaki's story about coming out with Jehovah's Witnesses and such, you need to hear the story. It's incredible. No, I don't think I have. He he actually came out because he was studying and learning. He wanted to be a good defender, as it were. And he'd go to websites like my ministry partners at Tectonics to learn how to defend issues like abortion and such, you know, defend the pro-life movement. And then he said, you know, the library of the Bible say, well, he's got some errant beliefs here on the Trinity, of course, because, you know, he actually believes the Trinity, and he actually believes that people have a soul, and that's wrong. But this other stuff is good, but it's slowly starting to open up his mind to that kind of thing, actually being right overall and coming to my site and finding some material and helping out. I mean, it was an interesting story. I mean, Rob Bowman, I said, I've never heard a story like this one. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, one other group I think would be interesting to mention. You know, and uh, when I got to the section in the book, I read aloud to my wife what it was, and it sounded like a science fiction novel with a galactic overlord capturing people and putting them over volcanoes where hydrogen bombs would go off and then subjecting them to movies to control their thinking and such. And she started naming all these fantasy series, trying to figure out which one it was I was talking about. I said, no pun, it's Scientology. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely probably my favorite section of the book right there. Um, Because it's just, you read it, 
And it seems like how in the world could anybody possibly believe that this is really the origin story of how we got here. Mm-hmm. But uh, by the time you reach that point in Scientology, uh, it's a pretty high you know, level and you've invested tons and tons of money, tons and tons of time. Mm-hmm. You believe that they've actually helped you in your life and removing your engrams you know, kind of like what they would call sin, you know, they don't like the word sin, but, um, it's like past traumas that they help you get past and stuff. Um, but they, I've been told that they actually like they handcuff a briefcase to you. And then when like you reveal like inside the briefcase is the, these, this story. And so like you were on the inner of the inner circle to know, and be privy to the story. So like by the time you get there, they are, you are so ingrained in the system that it doesn't even phase you. Mm-hmm. Like you actually believe this is real. This mm-hmm. is true. And, um, you know, so they've you know, basically the whole idea is that classic, like you're really a God, uh, but you just don't know it. You need to realize your Godhood kind of very new agey type mm-hmm. of feel to it. Um, and they just call us Thetans Our, you know, our soul is the real, and we need to get back to the analytic mind and using our analytic mind, but we were stuck by using our reactive mind. And, um, so the, they, you go into your auditing sessions and they use this thing called the e-meter and it's supposed to detect engrams. And when they detect an engram, that's like, a, like I said, this past trauma event. So they'll just keep on walking you through the event and until like you literally have listed off every detail. And then like once you've done that, then the engram is supposed to be gone. You're supposed to be moved on. And so then you, you go on to the next thing. And then you, as you move up levels, it gets more and more expensive. So that's why they have a celebrity center as, you know, a, a official place for their, uh, for Scientology, because the people who really are able to get high up in this organization, the system are the people who have a ton of money. So that's why you have all these celebrities um, that they you push out there and they, they have plug for Scientology. But that's, that's basically what it is. I mean, he was a science fiction writer before he started it, and he was quoted as saying, the fastest way to make a million dollars is to start your own religion, and a year later, Scientology was born. Uh, I think it was Tom Cruise who went on Oprah once and said, I know the history of psychology. Am I remembering that right? I don't know. I don't know what you're referring to. Yeah, I was just pretty sure I'd heard that Tom Cruise, who's probably the most famous proponent of it, did go on uh, open one time and talking about how he knew the history of psychology. And if that's accurate, I mean, what he's talking about is the whole Xenu thing and about the, the plot to control our minds and things of that sort. Yeah. And uh, yeah, more than likely, I would I would imagine that he and, you know, like John Travolta and those guys are probably at the level where they, they have been told this and they know it and they believe it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I think one of the things that gets people with this is that it is a severe level of mind control. Exactly. 
how do you recommend just even starting a conversation with these people? Because it's certainly not going to be a one-time deal. You have one conversation, and lo and behold, they see the light, and they come to Jesus, and all is where it. If you're going to save someone in the car, it's going to be a long-term investment. How, how do you recommend really beginning the conversation? Well, I mean, it, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to start them out by like, hey, would you read this verse in the Bible? <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess I would probably, um, if I had it handy, you know, the, the, the logo, one of the logos for Scientology, it's kind of got this thing that looks like a cross. And I would probably use that and go like, hey, you know, like, I'm curious, like, what, what is that? Do you guys believe in the cross or do you believe in Jesus? And just see what they, they how they, they would respond to that and maybe just get the conversation going um, about what they believe. And in the process, just asking them questions and getting them to articulate more and more. And as they do that, and this is important to understand that, like you said, with the Watchtower, uh, when you go to um, a kingdom hall, they are literally just reciting the words verbatim, right? So uh, the same thing happens with all of these groups. They're told these things, and so you ask them a question, and they go on autoplay. And they're just pulling up some kind of Watchtower article, or they're pulling up something in Scientology, and they're just spouting things off. They're not even thinking about it. They're just spouting off these answers. This is the truth. This is the answer. But if you keep on asking clarifying questions, eventually you get to a place where they don't have the, the auto record set um, and they have to actually think about the question. And that's where you have to get them to because um, until you get to that place, you're not even talking to them really. I mean, you're talking to their leaders. You might as well be, or you might be, it might as well just be reading Doctrine and Covenants or whatever. Um, You've you got to get to a place where you get them to think because that's where they'll actually hear themselves. They'll, they'll process what they're saying and they might even realize, wow, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and you want to get them to that point. You want to leave them with a question that they don't have an answer to um, because they can't go to their leaders in these groups and ask the question, you know, that plays to our advantage in a way, because mm -hmm. if they're struggling with something in their church or they have a question, they're more likely to come to you as the Christian if you're their friend and talk to you about it than they would ever talk to like their Mormon friends or, you know, Scientology friends or or their leaders, you know, because they're just going to be flat out told like, hey, don't ask questions, <laughs> you know, like you need to have more faith. There's something wrong with you. Why would you be asking that? Why don't you understand that? Why don't you have enough faith? Um, it's always, again, it's always the person who has the problem, never the organization. So um, that plays to our advantage, um, those things right there. But you want to get them to study things out. You want to get them to ask questions. You want to get them to think for themselves. You know, I have something interesting to say about that. Actually, I'll get to that point. Because right now at the time where I need to tell people about how they can donate to deeper waters and such, and as everything we do here, it's listener supported by people like you. I I don't get paid for what I do here. I don't pay my guests anything to come on. They come on freely. 
So if I get any support, Viri, it's going to come from you all that way. And if you think this is a wonderful podcast to listen to and you're blessed by it, be kind, please, and consider giving back to it. Go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link there. It says, help support the work of Christian Waters of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. <laughs> you go there and you click on it and it takes you to Risen Jesus. That's the right place. That's my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You click on that and you make your donation there and then you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I uh, made, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they, we, we will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. But you have to make sure that we know about it or else it's going to be assumed to be a minute a donation for Risen Jesus. If you want to support Risen Jesus, that's fine. But if you want to support us, it has to be directly to us. Now, you can also buy ebooks. I have either written or co-written. Written are books such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. Co-written are books like Defining Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, Christian Answers, Rich Generations Question, and most recently, uh, the Mention of Ours Project, 40, uh, 40 Questions Answered by Christian Apologists and such. I was one of the contributors to that. And uh, another thing you can do, you know, I mean, Jason, I've seen from your picture, you're uh, apparently a happily married man. Um, does your wife like jewelry? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, women tend to like it. We've got a jewelry store here, actually. One of our friends runs Premier Jewelers. She's a sales lady for it. And you can go and you can buy something special at Lady in Your Life and do it through us. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that purchase goes to Deeper Waters. So now let's get something special at Lady in Your Life, and you can support a ministry at the same time. And like I tell you regularly, you can buy something special of that Lady in Your Life to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special of that Lady in Your Life to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. Now, if you can't do any of these, please consider going online on iTunes and such and sharing a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I check my regularly, and it thrills me so much whenever I get to see a good review of a show to see how much it means to you all. Things like that. So please consider doing that. Share a podcast with friends. Get the word out. Things like that. Now, um, Jason, do you have any organization or charity that you'd like to see people donate to? Well, uh, we do not have an official, you know, nonprofit status for people with a free gift. But uh, what I tell people is that you can support the ministry on a number, a number of levels. Level one would be just like, you know, you can go on Amazon, purchase the book, paperback or Kindle. And then uh, I get a portion of that, of course. Um, 
and that's sharing Jesus with the Colts. Uh, the other thing, just level one, you can go uh, and like our Facebook page, People of the Free Gift, and engage in conversation. Same thing with our YouTube channel, People of the Free Gift. And we have tons of material, including lots of book, uh, material going through this book, um, and we're taking it a little section at a time. Level two would be um, I'm offering the opportunity for people to uh, do a small group Bible study in your church based off of the book. And it's really just as simple as you gather the questions from the people that are interested and you give me the time frame. And then I, in turn, uh, create custom studies, uh, uh, video-based studies and discussion questions to answer the questions of your group uh, dealing with the book. And uh, you just give me your order, you know, number of orders for the book and whatever donation that you have on your heart. And um, and it's just as simple as that. And then level three would be if you wanted me to actually uh, speak to your group and we could do that live or online. All I ask is for travel reimbursement and then you um, allow me to set up a book table at your at your place. And um, so those are the three levels in ways that you can uh, support uh, what I'm doing. And, uh, like I said, uh, I, and like Nick said, I don't receive a salary. Like if anything, it's just going to offset the cost of doing all the things like writing a book, um, and creating YouTube videos and uh, all of the things that our, our ministry does. Mm-hmm. And we will be giving details at the end of the episode on how you can purchase the book, Sharing Jesus with the Cults. It's a very good overview on so many of the cults out there and tactics on how to reach each of them. Focus largely on groups like the Mormons, especially since you did a whole lot of work with them. But there's a whole lot of other groups in there you can talk about. Now, you talk about how uh, they can't go back to their church and ask questions. There's a Funny story, my former roommate and I have that uh, we, we had some Mormons visiting us, and we considered our apartment kind of a revolving door of Mormons because so many times the Mormons would get switched out on us. Yes. And we had one who was really starting to ask a lot of questions. And one day we decided that we were going to take them out to eat, and not too far from my apartment, even within walking distance, was a little Jewish deli, which we often think about how humorous that was to have walking into a Jewish deli, two Christian apologists and two Mormons. There's there's a joke there somewhere. (laughs) But (laughs) we had one who who came just for the first time. That was the only time we ever saw him. And when he came into our apartment, the first thing he saw well, all my classic video game systems right there, because I'm a gamer, always have been, probably always will be. And he was just so fascinated by that, because he grew up playing a lot of these classic games, such, and he just wanted to talk about it so much. And when we were at this delicatessen, and of course we paid for everything, we walked, we walked there, and the whole time, all this guy wanted to talk about was games, 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 games the whole time, which is fine for us. We enjoyed talking about that. But then on the way home, my roommate noticed that he was start, still wanting to talk about the games, but he also saw this other guy who, like I said, had been doubting, we're convinced, was talking to me. And so as we're walking back, my roommate steers 
this guy want to talk about games away from me. So we're we're walking close enough, but we're out of earshot of each other. And the guy's completely oblivious while I'm talking to his friend and answering so many questions that I can about the gospel. It's like, well, why do you all have the cross on display in your churches and such? Because Mormons don't have a cross up there, and we talked about that. And let's say this. We're pretty sure those two got a really good talking to later on. And we remember they had someone from the Quorum of the Seventy come to our church and give a talk. And we were invited to come. We thought, well, someone from the Quorum of the Seventy, this is bound to be something much more substantial than anything we've heard. This should be really, really good. Um, get there, and it turns out he gives the exact same talk every single other Mormon gives, where he just talks about his testimony over and over. This is, oh yeah, but yes. And we found everybody, apparently they were asking, who invited those guys to come to this event here? So, yeah, that, when you talk about they can't ask questions, that just came to my mind immediately. Yeah, when we were living in Utah, um, our next door neighbors were a pretty prominent family in town. And uh, we lived in a town that was like 90% LDS. And um, so they invited us, they invited me one day to one of their state conferences. Now, this wasn't general conference, but it was a state conference. And um, one of the speakers was like this former Baptist, like, the pastor's kid who is now, you know, like a, a bishop. And um, so it was a really interesting experience because here were my very Mormon neighbors that were introducing me to like all of these really important people in their stake. Um, I, and it was like getting a invite into the inner circle and I just felt, found that was really interesting. I found the speaker's talk really tragic because he was sharing his story and basically about how he felt like the Mormons had answers to things that, you know, the Christians didn't have answers to. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really sad and tragic. But um, I look back on that and just thinking there's a lot of Christians who go to events like that with like, the Mormons. And they are on the outside and they're like trying to start these conversations and really controversial tactics and things. And yeah, here I was like on the inside being introduced personally to all of these people. It was a really interesting experience. You know, one thing is that we can say all about this based on what you said about having all these questions at the church couldn't answer. In their own way, we can say sometimes the cults and the heretics in general do us a service because when they do show up, they do make us refine our doctrine and get it clarified to see what what it really means. I mean, Arianism, we can be thankful that showed up because that really made us look and say, hey, we really got to know how to defend the deity of Christ. Yes, I, I would agree. And, you know, the, the early apologists like Justin Martyr, you know, they were dealing with their issues and we're dealing with now, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are almost like the modern day, modern day followers of Arian. Mm-hmm. Uh, they believe he had it right um, at the Council of Nicaea. Um, so, you know, each 
area, each time frame has always had their um, deviance, you could say, um, those who would call themselves Christian, but then uh, deviate from mm-hmm. the accepted Christian doctrines. Now, mm-hmm. I, I just I, I want to know your thoughts on this because you, you said you okay. wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed, and yeah. um, you know you just mentioned, mentioned the Council of Nicaea. I just did a video on YouTube where I was talking about how at this point uh, I feel like sometimes the the creeds and the councils actually do a disservice to us because I find that a lot of Christians kind of just default to the creeds rather than to the Bible. When um, you say like in town, we have a ministerial association and they wanted to figure out like, how can we keep like the the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses out, you know, um, and have this be a Christian ministerial association. And so they went to the, the Nicene Creed as if you can agree to this, well, then uh, you can be in the group kind of thing. And, of course, that's going to keep out the cults because they all think Nicaea was evil. But instead, it just seems like it would be much more helpful if you had more of a, a statement of faith that was straight from the Bible, like, do you believe that there is one God? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that Jesus is man? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead? Because what a lot of Christians don't realize is that the the Apostles' Creed, Council of Nicaea, and Athanasian Creed, those are the big three that everyone always points to, but none of them address the idea of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Mm-hmm. That doesn't come until the Reformation. And then after the Reformation, the Catholic Church counters with the Council of Trent, saying anybody who believes that is anathema. You know, they, they fly out rejected and denied. And so we have these councils pre-Reformation that we point to and we say, see, like this is where we establish our faith. But then we there's these councils that they still continued after the Reformation that we completely and utterly reject. And so I, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Do, you, do the creeds almost do a disservice at this point? I think the creeds do an important service. I mean, I honestly wish more Christians actually knew anything about the creeds. Most Christians I encounter don't have a clue about them. Now, when I wrote my ebook, the reason I wrote it was my wife and I were attending a Lutheran church at the time in Knoxville. And to this day, we still say it's the best church we've ever been to. It was a wonderful church. It, it was a place where my wife, who is very much more emotionally based, could feel at home, connect with people and such. In me, I was very intellectual based, still am, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I even had my pastor, Matthew Peepers, on come come on to talk about the show one time. You can find that in the archives. One thing I like to tell you they did is they had a number put up at the start of the service, and they said, if you have a question during the sermon and you want to know what the pastor thinks about it, even if it's not related to the sermon, text in that question, and the pastor will come out at the end and answer the questions. That was incredible to me. I thought it was wonderful. Now, regularly, we would cite the Apostles' Creed. I think the creeds are good to give a brief, short summary of what Christians believe, but they, they always should be meant to assume you have a good 
plural scripture or background knowledge. And mm-hmm. so we have this going on. I thought, you know, I should do something for our church as a wonderful gift to help people even better understand the Apostles' Creed and the doctrines behind it. And that's what I did. I wrote the book, and I had uh, Dr. Robert Cove, one of the leading Reformation scholars in the world, and he's been on my show before, come on to talk to... Uh, no, I, I had him write a foreword to it. He was very gracious and agreed to do that. And uh, I'd even said to the church, I, I don't know how much it worked out, but I said, anyone who's a member of our church, you let me know, and I will make sure you get a free copy of the ebook. And I dedicated it to our church at times. Oh, that's what I did. And I, I think the the main thing I want to get people doing here many times is I, I think the great danger with so many doctrines is that the Trinity becomes this doctrine that we don't really look at, we don't study it too much, but by God, we get out of the box and every Jehovah's Witnesses come so we can beat them up with it and go back and say, yeah, I show them the Trinity, all right? And it's like, okay, what difference does the Trinity make? Oh, um, oh, um, I'd like to establish, get people to realize what difference doctrines make. And you mm. know, you know, one of my main doctrines, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. And mm-hmm. I'd like people to realize, you know, the resurrection of Jesus means more, hey, Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the dead. It means a whole lot more than that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's my stance on that. Okay. Um, it, one of the things that I found that uh, another thing along with just kind of confusing not emphasizing salvation by grace through faith through the creeds, but then it, they emphasized that it was needed to clarify, like you said, what do we believe about Jesus and the deity of Jesus? Um, and then later on, like the full Trinity doctrine. Mm. But a lot of Christians confuse because they, they look at the creeds and they think that the Trinity is something that's like synonymous with the gospel. Meaning like, unless you believe the Trinity and understand the Trinity, then you can't be saved. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's to me like that. That's confused. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the Jesus being God, Jesus said, "Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins." Okay, mm-hmm. that's a very direct statement. Um, and then John counters that in First John, saying, "You know, if you don't believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, then you're the spirit of the Antichrist." And so that's a very clear statement, but there's nothing that I can see in scripture that's like definitive, like, unless you believe that there's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you will die in your sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I think my approach to that is I'm a member of a forum called Theology Web. Unless I've mm-hmm. been there for several years. I'm on staff there. I've been there for about 15 or so years. been on staff for about a decade. And when I list my designation, there are so many cult groups out there that would say Christian, or so many liberals out there that would say Christian, believe some very strange things. So I have listed instead Trinitarian, just so people will know fully 
where I stand, but I, I wear Equate Patrandi with the gospel, and I, I think there could be a danger to that, because especially many people who get saved as children, they sadly don't have a good stance on doctrine, so it's not going to be little 60-year-old Timmy comes down and he accepts Christ, and all of a sudden he's talking about the hypostatic union and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if anything, though, it shows us that we need to be doing more than something I said. Uh, I'm a member of Celebrate Recovery here as well. When I said we need to be doing, we, we started talking about evangelism at a meeting recently. I said, you know, the Bible never tells us to go out there and get converts. Never. Mm. It doesn't say at all. It says to make disciples. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're not doing. We are not making disciples. It, what we usually do, it's like getting a man and a woman to say, I do. I'm saying, well, that's done. You two have fun now, okay? And not helping them along on their, their married path together to learn to grow together. Because and you and I both know marriage takes work. And you're not going to do it easily. So what we need in the church really is much more discipleship on all of these issues. I, I completely agree. Actually, that was a point in my sermon. I was preaching on the Great Commission last Sunday. And I talked about the difference between evangelism and discipleship. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's exactly the point I was making. And that what Jesus commissioned us to do is so much more than, you know, like just invite them to church or... <laughs> Um, or even just share the gospel with them. Uh, he commissioned us, you know, to teach, uh, to make disciples, to baptize. You know, uh, it, uh, all these things that, that go with making a disciple, bringing somebody along, like you said, and helping them in their journey. And uh, Christians are so willing to, you know, hand off, you know, like, oh, I got them here. You know, you teach them. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> so and now if they stick around, that's your your call. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Christians, so many of us say we think our job is to get them to church from a pastor we'll convert them. Yeah. No, no, we need to be able to deal with so many of them on our own and such to be able to answer questions. And there's nothing wrong at the same time with recognizing that you will need help from other members of the body. I would be a fool, I think, in apologetics if I tried to answer every single question that came my way. I can't do it. I can't study that much and be a specialist in every single topic. So if someone comes to me and has a question on science, I'm happy to point them to an organization like Reasons to Believe. For instance, if they have a question about Islam, I'm happy to get in touch with someone like Abdu Murray, who's going to be on the show next month, or someone like David Wood, or anyone like that. I'm happy to point to a specialist at any time, as long as I'm still doing my part so that I can still answer some of the questions and if they they want help with another area that I'm not specifically trained in or studied in and such I'll go on to them like I I haven't studied this area I'm not the best person to talk to but here's someone who might know a better answer to your question and that's what we all need to do 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And in a, lar- in a large way, there's actually, if you're reading my book, I, I mentioned this in the, the beginning part that uh, there are some key friends uh, that I've made that um, specialize in talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or mm-hmm. they talking to different groups. And I relied very heavily on their, their knowledge and my interaction with them and asking them questions um, because I didn't want to just have the book limited to my my limited experience or knowledge you know i wanted it to be representative of the best that i could give yeah i think that's something also i want to say about your book i think it's a very good book at the same time i encourage people to see your book as kind of a gateway book as it were but you if you look and you say hey you know i'm very interested in say Mormon doctrine, where then you go out and you look at material that's much more heavily focused on Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever it is. I think your group's meant to like, your book's meant to like, get, show you the many different paths and give you a good basic introduction to each one without thinking this is the end all, you don't need to do any more beyond this point. Absolutely. I mean, and even if you just took, you know, like the footnotes in those sections, that would point you towards uh, other resources that would be helpful um, to get you started on that journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's always a good start. Or, you know, like there's a lot of websites that are on there that that, that I, I utilize, too. Um, but, yes, it was actually intended like I, I taught the class at Bethel, Understanding the Cults. And this book started out as kind of fleshing out or putting in writing what I was teaching my students. And so it was a survey class. It wasn't focused on Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or any one of them. We had to talk about all of them. And it was even more focused on like, how do you share the gospel with them than learning all the intricacies about what those groups believe. And so that that's really what it is. And so, like you said, I would definitely recommend um, what I wanted this book to be is kind of like a reference point mm-hmm. that people could have on their shelf, even if it's like it's sitting there. I know, of course, I want them to read it and learn and grow. But even if it's sitting on their shelf and they have that panic moment when the, you know, the knock on the door happens and they're, you know, oh, there's missionaries here. Um, let's reschedule. And then they go to the, the shelf and they pull it out and they go, oh, my gosh, what do Mormons believe? How do I do this? What, what's going on? Um, even on that level um, that they'd be able to use it or if there's a particular topic that they're uh, or a scripture that that's why I have the indexes in the back. It's to make it user friendly so that they could just be able to get the answer or the information or pointed in the direction that they, they need to go and be able to use it that way. Yeah, I think it's also so good that, you know, when you're interacting with cults, also always try to point to their primary sources as much as you can and get some yes. information from the anti-sources like yours. But I wouldn't reference your book if I was talking to a Mormon because they're going to blow it off immediately at that point. I'll get a reference from your book for yes. Mormons and such. And if and most of the most of the references or the, the footnotes that you're yeah. going to see in those different sections are from the specific yeah. sites like LDS.org, Mormon.org. Yeah. Those are both the LDS official sites. So um, that's where I tried to go. So yes, reference that, not my book. Yeah, and what I think of that being is if you can go through their books and literature yourself. I mean. 
I mean, I have these Mormons visiting. They knew I'd already read the Book of Mormon. They didn't know, but I've also already read the Doctrines and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Abraham, um, Mormon Doctrine, Teachings of Presence of the Church, um, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, all these others. And it really can increase your your standing such. I, I remember talking with even a Muslim once, and I said, look, have you ever even read the New Testament? He said, no. Have you ever read the Quran? Yes. <laughs> it was clear at that point, who's, who's got the most study here to talk about these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It does add credibility. And, you know, it, every Mormon is going to ask you, have you read the Book of Mormon? And mm-hmm. so to be able to say, yes, I have, it just takes that off the table. I mean, they might ask you, how, well, how did you prayed about it? You know, because they always want to put that. There's only like one right answer to that mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Right. So um, because it's absolutely true in their mindset uh, versus, you know, our mindset. But um, yes, absolutely for those who really want to deep dive into this, you feel called to talking with people in these groups or even one of these groups, then I would strongly recommend, like you said, go to their scriptures. Just read their scriptures. That way you have a reference point to know, okay, this is what it teaches, um, and this is how it's different than the Bible and then you can go to their other, you know, founders or their their leaders current day. And how did they interpret these things um, and, you know, have a better have a better talking point. You, you know, more, the more you know about what they believe, the more you can have an intelligent conversation, the more you can know what specific questions to ask to, to get them to clarify. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's something interesting about the Mormon test every time it comes up. I mean, just like you said, the organization can't be in the wrong ever. The Mormon test, apparently, can never be in the wrong. If if it works, whereby golly, the Book of Mormon is true. If you don't give it these artwork, well, you, you weren't praying enough. Well, you didn't have sincere intent or anything like that, did you? And when I had these Mormons here yesterday, they said, would you like to believe that the Book of Mormon is true? And I said, look, if anything is true, I would like, if it can be shown to be true, I would like to believe it. But wanting to believe something isn't enough. I would very much want to believe that there's a million dollars in my bank account right now. And I don't have any financial worries. But that's not going to change things when I go down to the bank and have my card looked and see how much is in there. Wanting something to be true is not going to make it true. Yeah, and what you just brought up is what they call the double bind, mm-hmm. okay? And it's classic mind control, uh, all mind control groups practices. Mm-hmm. It's where they ask you a question, and the Book of Mormon challenge in Moroni is a clear double bind because you think that there's one of three answers, right? Yes, mm-hmm. it's true. Uh, no, it's not true, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um but like you said, if they come back and you say, hey, did you pray about the Book of Mormon? Oh, yeah, I did. Well, in my, my personal story, when I was a teenager, I actually did. And God told me, you haven't read the Bible yet. Put this down. <laughs> I'm not joking. Mm. And so I, I did. Um, and so 
if I were to say that, they would be like, well, like you said, it, well, is there sin in your life? Or maybe you can need to come to church with us, or maybe you need to cut out caffeine from your diet. Or, you know, like, um, I, it, that's a real thing. I mean, any kind of behavior modification that they can do um, to get you, and then they'll say, okay, now do it again. And read more of the Book of Mormon. Read the, read over here. Come to church with us. Um, and they'll keep on modifying behavior and have you do it again until you either get the answer that's the right answer, according to them, or you tell them to buzz off. You know, mm-hmm. um, that, that there is no – there's only one right answer. That's what they call a double bind. Mm-hmm. And every one of these groups practices that in one way or another, and it's c- complete and pure mind control. Mm-hmm. That's certainly not – tell people about the Jehovah's Witnesses and such. I say usually the main thing I think to do to reach Jehovah's Witnesses is that you have to break the connection with the Watchtower. I consider it like that classic movie, The Matrix. Yeah. I say the Jehovah's Witnesses are plugged into the system. They are hopelessly dependent on it. They cannot think or do anything apart from the system, and until you get them unplugged from it, you are going to be wasting your breath, because they will go back, they will write to the organization, if you have, they have any doubts, they will get some answer, it won't be a good answer, but it will be something that will satisfy them. You have to get them to doubt the organization. You have to free your mind, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing I'm probably not the first one to use that illustration with you. I just love the Matrix, so oh, that's, oh, yes. <laughs> you hit on a you hit on a chord with me. So, mm-hmm. yes. so but do do you agree with that approach to the Jehovah's Witnesses? That if you really want to reach them, you have to be able to somehow sever that connection they've got with the Watchtower. You yes, on a certain level, you have to cause some reason within them to um, want to question or like uh, to listen more to what you have to say. Uh, so, for uh, for some, that means you directly call into question the Watchtower. Uh, for others. It might be that, uh, like I said, you, you show them something that, like Jesus said that mm-hmm. doesn't mesh with what their church teaches. And that can be a double, like a win-win, because you've at the same time you've got them believing in Jesus and over and against their church. Um, and so that's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Because every group still, and I find very fascinating, whatever religion comes on nowadays, they always have to somehow find an explanation for Jesus. And even older religions like Buddhism and Hinduism that predate Christianity, they still want to find some way that they can fit Jesus into their system. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, because they they have the problem of so many Buddhists and Hindus converting to Christianity that they found a way that they could still hold them in as Hindu or Buddhist by making Jesus like one of the many gods or an incarnation of Vishnu or, um, you know, like the enlightened one. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, the Dalai Lama has written a lot of books on Jesus and his teachings or he's interacted with, uh, you know, uh, Christian, you know, so quote unquote Christian leaders um, on on things because they're wanting to 
basically tell people like, well, that's fine. You want to believe what Jesus taught and you want to believe he forgave you or whatever. That, that's great. You can still do that and be Buddhist, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, uh, it's an interesting tactic that they use in doing that. But yes, I, I've noticed that too, that like every single major world religion has to figure out what to do with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Jason, we've had an interesting conversation here. And I think one of the interesting things is, Sometimes in this conversation, you've turned it back on me and asked me some questions, which I, I like doing. I enjoy answering questions, but the clock is not always on our side. So we need to start wrapping things up. Tell people here, the book is um, Sharing Jesus with the Corpse. The paperback right now on Amazon, it's nineteen ninety nine. The Kindle, I'm also being wrapped. For some reason, it's not on the same page here, at least on my phone looking. The Kindle version, I think it's $9.99. I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't have a price list right here, but I think it's $9.99. It is. is. Okay. So you can go on Amazon and get that sharing Jesus with the cards. You get a brief overview of the cards and then a look at how to talk to the cards and a defense of the Bible. All these brief introductions, but still very good to have them. Jason, do you have a... uh, blog, website, and email way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more. Yeah, the the two best ways right now to get in touch with me are to go to the Facebook page, People of the Free Gift, or the YouTube page, People of the Free Gift. And either way, you can uh, get in touch with me, interact with me, and I would love to do that and answer any questions or set up, like I said, a small group study with you. Um, and uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. And do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? I just don't think that there's a magic silver bullet. Um, They say that the average time between where the first doubt comes into their mind and when they actually leave these churches is about five years. Mm -hmm. And so when you're dealing with cults, you're dealing with the long haul, you're dealing with relational evangelism, you're dealing with, you know, being there having these great conversations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they get more tense than others. Try and keep your cool because a lot of them think that contention is of the devil. Um, And uh, just love on them and be there for them. Grace and truth. You know, one other tip I think I'd give also is at our house, I'm the intellectual, you know, but, since we had sisters visiting with us, they, they really wanted to insist that another woman was there, which I wanted to insist as well. That's just good, safe business. And yes. when we were done talking, I did ask my wife how it went. And she said, your answers were good, but some of the mannerisms, which probably is because I'm, I've got Asperger's and such, we both do, but she notices this stuff. I mean, says, some of that stuff could have come across the wrong way, and you need to watch this. So, guys, um, if you've got wives and they're there with you, try and listen to them on those kinds of things. They probably know what they're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason, I'd like to thank you for coming on, and I do hope we'll see you back here again sometime. That would be great. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> and I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Danny Aiken on for an hour. We're going to be talking about his book, God on Sex. But for now... I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.